Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with Nu Gauthier, Alice Grandois, and Marquis Stowell, founding editors of Deem Journal. Deem is a biannual publication that launched in 2020 and aims to challenge and expand the way we think about design. Instead of focusing on specific products, objects, or aesthetics, what we might think of as typical outputs of design, New Alice and Marquise created Deem as a way to explore design in diverse, process-oriented terms. There have been three issues of the journal published so far. The kind of stories they cover include, for example, how we might design hyper-local food systems in a way that dignifies the experience of marginalized people, or the Black Reconstruction Collective on the architecture of equity, or strategies for chronicling the Black trans experience. This kind of project feels like it's part of a broader social turn in architecture and design culture, which is really what drew me to it. Across design disciplines, there's this growing awareness of the varieties of what's often now referred to as lived experience, and how the experiences of people from underrepresented backgrounds constitute a valuable form of knowledge, and a knowledge that sits outside of the standard formats of design media and academia. I spoke with the Deem editors about their work and ambitions for the journal over Zoom back in June of 2022. I was in London, Alice was in Copenhagen, and New and Marquise, I think, were both in New York. All right, so here's my interview with New Gauthier, Alice Grandois, and Marquise Tovell, founding editors of Deem Journal. I hope you enjoy it. What excites me the most about Deem as a publishing project is that it's a curatorial project to some extent, that as editors, collectively, you're making a decision about what matters, what has value, what belongs in the specific publication, Deem Journal. And I thought it was so interesting, the name of the journal, Deem, which speaks to the notions of judgment and the determination of value. And of course, this is what magazines already do. This is what the podcast I produce already does. We make decisions about what we think is important and what merits kind of closer attention. So what were the gaps in contemporary design writing that Deem is now filling? And what are the criteria that you use to determine what stories are worth telling in the first place? Um, I think in order to even answer this question, we could take a step back from just writing in general and really look at design as a whole. Um, what we saw was that design was in love with output. Design is based on output and that output is gauged by fidelity. So how beautiful, finished, polished is said design. And because of that, we also started to interrogate the relationship of fidelity and resources. And we know that resources aren't evenly distributed to everyone. So then what that left is this gap that design only shows up when there is a well-resourced person behind it. Design only appears when it's on a specific stage or has specific writing around it or even has a specific academic framework. And what we saw is that that really, in its sense, limits the value and the opportunity that design actually has to be able to have a positive impact on people and on communities. And so for us, we decided, well, what happens if you move away from design as an output and start to look at design as a process of adding value? And so even going back to the name, the name, to your point, is this moment of reflection, but we're actually 
taking it a step further and saying, oh, this is a moment of reflection for design as an industry, as a practice, as a framework. And how do we create these moments that we can pause and things that would be overlooked as not designed, that may be craft or it may just be something that's innate within a specific community that we're like, no, no, actually we're gonna take a moment and give this process of adding value that's not limited to just designers, it's just due. The only thing that I will add is also the, the notion of adding value also, um, unfortunately, in a capitalist society, speaks to who owns what. And what you are seeing over and over in design is this idea of protecting outcomes and outputs, and even to a place of limiting who can actually repeat those things in certain forms. And so the other thing that we're unpacking is this free flow of ideas. Uh, if you look back historically at you know, old frameworks and institutions from the Bauhaus uh, forward, uh, you know, it has been about going out and quote, borrowing, taking, stealing um, from societies that have put more emphasis on what it means to be communal and what it means to think about the process and particularly the process of living um, with the understanding that there is a design process, but it was about the lived experience of adding value, not the commercial value of it. And so for us, continuing to investigate and unpack and making sure that um, certain groups of individuals who have been overlooked um, are seen of the same value and should have the same opportunity and access to freely express their work is also important for our journey. I want to try and unpack this distinction between process and product more with you all. But before we get to that, I still want to hang on this question of the initiation of DEEM or why it exists. And I want to try and understand what were you longing for as editors? So I think that the deep longing that we all held was this desire to feel reflected in design conversations. Um, we were we, we all have practiced um, within within the field and I'll say that in air quotes. Um, but a lot of the rooms that we were showing up into or even projects that we were working on, we never really walked into those spaces and felt like our lived experiences were validated within those contexts. And so, we were really motivated to, as Marquis usually says, kind of build evidence, although this was this is an evidence that is not doesn't live exclusively on pages. It is literally what we know. Um, as Marquis usually says, it's it's in our it's within our DNA. So it was just really important for us to kind of center our lived experiences. I think we actually usually get this question sometime of like, who is your audience? And I think First and foremost, I think our audience is ourselves, actually. Um, I don't think, and, and, and I think it actually moves the conversation beyond us designing for other people and us designing with people. Um, and this kind of deep desire for, for reflection and some sort of representation. Um, so I think that's maybe first and foremost where, where we kind of met forces. I think this brings us back to that dichotomy I wanted to explore with you around this distinction between the product and the process. <laughs> I mean, we're all designers in this conversation. And I think understand before we started recording, Marquise, we were talking about how beautiful your headphones were. We understand the value of a good product, the allure of a good product. And um, the, in a way, the importance of a product to crystallize an idea or an identity. And I think most of you have worked in this realm of branding and identity too. So I'm sure you're intimately familiar with the importance of constructing an identity and constructing a brand in a way that translates it into an identifiable product. And at the same time, the ambitions of Deem as a journal seem to have to do a lot with undoing that desire for the product and instead starting to articulate design as what you've called a social process. So can you 
Can you help me understand, based on the worlds you've come from around brand identity and marketing, and the worlds you've moved into with the Deem Journal, how you begin to dismantle the product and really um, create a sense of attraction or um, attention around design as a social process? Yeah, I can, I can start. Um, <clears throat> actually, on my desk, not, I'm not at my desk right now, but on my desk at the studio, I have a post-it note that says the process is the product. And so you're right, those two things do work together, um, lock and step. And for us, I think part of the goal isn't to just differentiate between product and process. The goal is to create a much more inclusive design future. And so being able to draw that distinction is a means to the end. It's not necessarily just purely the, the focus, because I will say, and I think Alice can add on, there is a lot of research and rigor that goes into each issue to the point where the journal itself is pretty much an academic journal. And one of the things that we're very conscious of, and that also speaks to the actual product and comes from our branding and marketing background, we're like, well, how can we make this academic journal as engaging and as enticing, not only for people who identify as designers, but people who may not even see themselves in the design space. Because at the end of the day, we want as many of those people as well to be engaged in Dean. Alice, I want to ask you a question. <laughs> um, I mean, prior to Dean Journal, you'd um, established another publishing project called Top Rank magazine, which also had a, um, which also had a kind of associated podcast, which I think is still running now and hosted by um, collaborators from Dean Journal. So can you, as a way of kind of expanding on your prelude into Dean, can you tell me about um, Top Rank and what you set out to explore with it and why uh, in the end you moved on to Dean? Um. Top Rank was a publication that I had the honor of collaborating with a group of women in New York on between the years of 2013 to 2015. And it really was born out of a dissatisfaction, which is usually how most of my projects evolve or, or what they evolve out of, a dissatisfaction somewhat with the status quo, and then usually leading to some sort of provocation, like there some other thing, future, whatever it is, could be possible. Um, and I actually have seen this through line with Deem as well. And really at the time, there was a dissatisfaction towards media around women, women-centric media, and most specifically a lack of like uh, political ethics that we thought were necessary at the time, um, especially as somebody that comes to the table with a background in the creative industries. A lot of stories that were kind of around at the time were very much focused on this concept of, of the it girl. And it was always kind of like this overnight success story about how someone one day got funding to do a music video for somebody and then now they're a model and now they have this great success. Somebody just gave them money to start a business and it just felt very, very distant from a lot of the experiences that myself and other women, other creative women in New York were having. Um, but in addition to that, we were really interested in really trying to, I think, build a, um, feminist politic around an editorial um, project. And this kind of leads me to my next point or my next kind of idea around frameworks for publishing. It's kind of, there's some sort of dissatisfaction. There is a provocation, which is like, what else could be true? And then there's some sort of like space where you're able to extend invitations to new perspectives. And so with top rank, what we really wanted to do was actually center the voices of women that really hadn't been at the center. What was really interesting about Top Rank is that I think that it was definitely a moment where a lot of the conversations and discourse around feminism was, was rising to the pop cultural forefront. And we felt really honored, I think, to be leading it in a very hyper-local way. Um, mm. Yeah, I think why it was a one-off, sometimes things are a moment in time. And um, I think 
for us, it was one, it was also funded by, by a grant with a organization that was focused on kind of supporting uh, media makers in New York. We actually produced that entire issue out of the old New York Times building. So the first building that they had on West 43rd Street in New York City in their old penthouse, it was actually being refurbished at the time. And um, I guess based on my experience, I there was only one way to kind of grow a media platform, which was that we had to think about short form media and or sell advertisements that did not align with what it was that we were actually speaking about. Mm. And I turned down many um, opportunities for advertisers to work with us because they wanted to advertise products that I would never sell. I would never gift to my mother. <laughs> so I had to kind of maybe politely bow out, but um, mm. I still feel very thankful for that opportunity and also for the experiences of bringing people together and also for the opportunity to build on how to bring people together through a print format. And I think this is a natural extension from the work that I used to do in music before, which was like bringing people together um, across formats. That's right. You used to work for, or you had an internship at Island Def Jam. <laughs> is that right? Yes. <laughs> This is a yes. This is my first foray into the music industry. And you were you were showcasing emerging talent there. Were you responsible for the first shows by J. Cole and Miguel? I was. <laughs> this is a. <laughs> I was in New York, and actually, this was this was independent of Island Def Jam. So I actually had an internship there mm. in my early twenties, uh, and again, grew really dissatisfied with the way that the music industry was, what they were moving towards, and also, to be quite frank, the way that women were treated there. Mm. So I actually had the opportunity to leave and go work at a digital media agency that was based in Harlem on 127th Street, a Black-owned media agency. It was one of the most formative experiences of my life. It's actually where I met New. Mm. Um, and there I had a lot of freedom to actually <laughs> make a whole new media platform. So media making has actually always been a part of my practice. At the time, blogs were really important. So I worked with the media agency to actually create a digital platform that was showcasing a lot of the music culture that I felt at the time was also underrepresented. Mm. Um, and that kind of translated into me collaborating with some friends to kind of build a platform called Homebase where we focus on like live shows and also a small video series and also a radio show that kind of <laughs> built this holistic, um, yeah, media ecology for these artists and with hmm. them. You, in another interview you gave, you described yourself as a permalancer, which is the first time I've heard that term, but I totally understand it now hearing just how many um, projects you had on the go at that time. And I imagine it's the same, uh, Marquise and, and you, for you as well. I and mean, to some extent, I relate to that term too. Uh, there's, a, there's a concept now of splintering of roles, and it's probably generational, um, where once maybe um, I would have been simply an architect. Um, but but my, I, I would challenge to say you, you would never be a simply an architect if mm -hmm. we would have moved, if we would have stayed in line with the process versus the outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. and because to be an architect, to be a scientist, to, to be any of those things is, is to be multifaceted, is that the person who made it, you know, built it, tested it, um, put it out into the market. Uh, we wouldn't have many of the things that we have today without individuals who understood the full process. Mm. Uh, and that to me is in some ways going back to the original definitions of what it means to be a designer and what it means to architect, as well as holding people accountable for not just passing over, passing, you know, here, here's the blueprints, now you take it. So mm. who's responsible for the way our cities live? Well, designers and architects, we need to take more responsibility um, in the outcomes and making sure that we have the language um, to also support the thinking that we're doing. So that's, yeah. again, just another yeah. iteration of why Dean exists. Yeah. And, and I'll add, initially, when we were ideating, Dean was going to focus more on people who do not play within the lines, people who aren't just one type of whatever. I mean, we've evolved that thinking, but that was the foundational first thing that we wanted to address. Like, what does it mean to be dynamic? Why can't we be on this side and this side? And so even you called it out, like there is this dichotomy that we love to play with at, 
at Dean. And that actually is what we use to, to flow back and forth. And we never just want to be so absolute on one side. Mm. It's just um, it's a question that's so front of mind for me now in terms of the kind of conversations I've been having recently with this, and also the kind of projects I've been seeing in architecture schools where process becomes the subject matter. It becomes the project, whether it's consultation, whether it's understanding and representing complex systems or networks. And the challenge is always how how do these essentially how do these relationships um, become something we can see and understand and um, engage with critically there's a kind of ambiguity or vagueness i think around um, the, the shifting kind of definition of design which you see becoming quite mainstream in a way and maybe it's in a response to um, like a, the kind of pernicious forms of capitalism that we're dealing with, where we need the object yeah. to kind of stimulate the desire to continue to consume unsustainably. Yeah, the, you know, I was going to say, my baseline background for myself is economics. My graduate work is, is in economics. And, you know, capitalism is driven through scarcity, right? And so what, what helps to create um, a capitalist system is, is, is this idea of limitations within the marketplace. But when that scarcity becomes true limits in regards to individuals' ability to express themselves, individuals' ability to add value, um, and that we're limiting ourselves in regards to outcomes, positive outcomes, positive opportunities. And so you can take the example of environmentalism, the limitations in where money is going and funding to actually start to come up with solutions. There is this tension and battle between fossil fuels and renewable energy, um, not because one, uh, not just because of the ideas of the two, but because of the limitation on where resources are going um, in regards to continuing to create a certain level of scarcity to make sure that there's a market pricing for fossil fuel to help bridge us to maybe renewable, but we don't want to get rid of an industry because then the whole market is going to crash is what people would say. So again, our ability to start to investigate the process within design and how you add value by moving beyond this idea of scarcity in a democratic society and looking at the limitations and those limitations are the what's really hurting us. And the limitation also begins with people, those individuals and black and brown people who have not had the resources to actually bring in what they believe could be a solution. So my big question to design is, are we really designers? Are we, do we really have a design community? Because the limitations in who is voicing and who have the resources is actually limiting our practice versus this market of scarcity, of output and value like my headphones. touch on one story in the most recent issue of Dean, which was about the Black Reconstruction Collective um, and the exhibition that they held at the Museum of Modern Art in 2021, which I think in a way speaks to this conundrum of, of scarcity and access to resource and in a way the kind of frictions that present themselves when pre-existing financial structures or power structures are then um, called into question by people for whom these systems were never designed. <laughs> and what I mean by that basically is that this collective of black architects who are asked to put on a show at the Museum of Modern Art as a part of this ongoing exhibition series around contemporary architecture, uh, which had in the past featured designers like Moss or Jeannie Gang. Um, when this, um, this new collective of architects were asked to be involved, they realized just how little money was in the pot. <laughs> and 
I was actually surprised to read the number as well. There was just like $8,000 to put on an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art. And um, it was, uh, first of all, just shocking for me to, to read that, that for anyone, this is the resources that they're being given access to. And it's to kind of assume that the prestige of the institution is enough uh, to kind of justify the low financial uh, compensation. And that as a designer, it's enough to you to lean on other institutions and relationships to subsidize the rest of the exhibition. So what happened was this collective of designers, which in fact weren't a collective to begin with, but then organized to become a nonprofit um, to generate, um, in a way, um, the kind of wealth that they've been deprived of. Could you just tell me more about the fallout around that, um, that tension and um, what they ended up doing, um, what their kind of solution to this problem was, and what kind of work it, it led to? Yeah, I can start. I think one of the things I do want to quickly touch on is that the for for them, even the fact that they said the $8,000, we were like, whoa, okay. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, whoa. But for them, I don't necessarily think it was purely just about the money per se, but part of it is the entire ecosystem of that in order for you to get to this level and you're invited in that but then you also need to literally have an entire ecosystem around you that is going to support you that isn't always afforded to them. And where some of them have that support, some of them didn't. And so really at the end of the day, the money aside, they were like, okay, well, are we really truly supposed to be able to show up at this, this institution at the level that we're supposed to show up at if we didn't have a lived experience that would allow us to, to do that. And so from there, they're really less just only calling out that institution, but calling out all institutions to say, hey, we actually need to think about this more critically and in a much more holistic way. Because if you're really trying to shift the perspective of architecture and design and be more inclusive, it doesn't just start with this show and this stipend that you're giving us. And even though the stipend wasn't that much, and also they say it in the interview, they were expected to pay these expenses upfront and then be reimbursed in installments in which it was like, okay, well, now you're, now you're just throwing, you know, your resources, the money into this black hole that you don't know what's going to come out of it. And so I think for, for us, when we interviewed them, there was a level of honesty and vulnerability that they came with. And part of that is for them to be able to pay it forward in which when they're working on creating their own institution that can help to fortify and create these opportunities, not only for them, but for also future generations of designers and architects who also want to be able to show an exhibit at this level that we've been trained to think like this is the prestigious like level, this is the highest accolade that, that you can get. But then when you actually get there, they want to make sure that there's a they're there. I would say that um maybe just to kind of add to what New said, um, you know, the to give more context, the last issue of DEEM was focused on the concept of equity. And that conversation, anchoring that issue in that conversation was really important because for us, what we realized through the making of that issue is that in order for you to even really think about moving towards an equitable future, you need to create space where people can actually be vulnerable and open up about experiences like that. Um, I don't know so many other spaces where I've read very honest stories about experiences as uh, such such um kind of like high profile experiences and i thought that that was so important and i think it's something that we also maybe strive to continue to work towards is like how do we open up a space where people can really be vulnerable and honest with us um because we really feel like that's the only way that we can really collectively move forward the, the journal itself also engages with ideas more broadly around social justice decolonization and intersectionality. And these are all concepts that have gained significant traction in popular culture. Um, so with this in mind, I wanted to ask uh, who the magazine's audience is. 
And to what extent Deem caters to those already engaged with these ideas versus those who are either uninitiated or skeptical or even opposed to them. When we initially were developing Deem, that was a question that came up often. Who's our audience? What what is our audience? And we kept it pretty loose. Um, but what we started to see is that the through line is that the people who are coming towards us who are designers, people who are design curious, um, educators, activists, is that there is this sense of hope. And there is a sense of wanting to be an active participant in creating a future that affirms them and affirms their, their community. And that tends to be the, the through line, that design is a platform and is an opportunity to create change and to create much broader systemic change. And they want to be able to participate in that. Um, really, it's this idea of hope and unabashed hope of a future and this positivity that they believe that they can also help to shape and they deserve to help to shape what the future looks like. And I think the reason I asked that question is because, and maybe especially in the US, but abroad as well, culture is so polarized. And there's such a unfortunate shorthand in terms of how we describe these polar cultures that often immediately shuts down further exploration. So I'm thinking of the word woke, for example. And my question is born out of this curiosity of how the journal starts to respond to that uh, broad brush kind of, in a way, dissolution of a much more complex set of concerns around contemporary culture um, and diversity and representation. Um, but at the same time, I know a lot of people would actually be very happy for a project to be branded woke and would kind of wear that badge proudly, which is also interesting. So I, I think maybe the question is, how, how do you respond to that? How would you respond to that perception from a kind of general audience? Whether it's the journal or any other projects, and I would say that the three of us all would align on this, this isn't about answering questions. This is about getting you to ask better questions. My hope is that the journal is this long form part of your library that you go back to and you reread. And then when you read a story, you take it to the next level. Uh, you know, New, you can talk a little bit about the reference room, which I think is just that yes and to this idea. But it's really important that people understand that for us, sparking curiosity, um, which also entails um, pulling on your vulnerability, is about you going deeper into the articles. And so this idea of being woke or anything, it's about, hey, I'm actually going to look at more, right? And so this woke isn't about, hey, I have a new understanding. It's that, no, I now have a place where I am paying attention and I'm going to ask more questions. And that to me is really um, the important piece of why we have Team Journal is that we hope to um, provoke um, better questions. I think I will just add to that what Marquis said quickly and then pass it over to New is I don't, uh, not only are we interested in sparking curiosity, but we're also interested in nurturing people's curiosity. And so this, this is also why, you know, I think I have many perspectives on, on, on woke culture, but I think that that's a sound, like for the way we see it utilized, it's a sound bite, it's something short form, it is performative at most. Um, and I think that we really try to move beyond that and really, again, think about this idea of nurturing curiosity. So there's places where we can spark it. And then through a lot of our programs, like, you know, once we, we always talk about when we release an issue that that's only the beginning of a conversation actually. So we're sharing our research with you as an as an entry point for us to begin new conversations around each topic. Um, and we then kind of bring people together through forums and other types of gatherings to continue to unpack them. And again, we're never really arriving at one answer because there isn't one answer for everyone. Um, 
well, what we're arriving at is a, is a pluralistic, um, you know, expression of what these kind of topics, how they manifest in people's lived experiences. And I think that that's then continued even with the reference room as like another kind of spatial way of thinking about nurturing people's curiosity. And I'll quickly add, because this, this was something that came to mind initially when we were talking about the definition of Dean, um, and even in our naming, is that we don't try to position ourselves as experts in the authority. And even though deem means to, you know, to observe and acknowledge value, we're also not the gatekeepers of that. We're also, even though we are curating, really each issue starts from a standpoint of a question, a design prompt. What is this, like how could designing for dignity become a, a design prompt. Okay, well now, how could we start to curate many different voices and perspectives that may not lead us to, here's the formula for design for dignity, but at least can contribute to this shared consciousness of what that could be. And due to the limitations of paper and resources, we can't bring in every single person and every single perspective, maybe in the future we will be able to. And so that's where the curation comes from, but it's not also from a need to say that, oh, now we're the stewards of what design should be and what the future of design will be. And really it's meant to like Alice and both Marquis said, to be able to spark this curiosity to get people to think about, well, what happens when I'm in the driver's seat mm. of this and how, and how can I empower myself to be engaged in this process? I love that you use the term steward or stewardship. I think you were saying that you weren't actually stewards, but in a way, I do see you as stewards. <laughs> I see you as cultural stewards uh, in the way that anyone embarking on um, a media project of this scale with an editorial focus are in a way taking on the role of a cultural steward. You are kind of assuming the role of an arbiter of value. I think stewardship is a more gentle uh, way of putting it, but nonetheless, it brings me to you know, other um, friends of this podcast and contributors to Deem as well, Sound Advice, Joseph Henry and Pooja Agrawal, who listeners will be familiar with, who, who took it upon themselves to simply create a new award system <laughs> and then bestow this award on cultural protagonists uh, who work within the built environment, uh, who uh, up until that point had remained invisible to the systems of acknowledgement that were in place. Um, and I think I, that's what I love so much about DEEM as a project, that through this act of stewardship, where you're, you're, very, you're very careful to look more closely at the cultures around you and to look for the cultures, I guess, within you that aren't yet reflected uh, within these authoritative forms of media. If we talk about the kind of authority of Deem as a journal, a lot of it has to do with, in a sense, the weight it carries as a, um, this is to use a term from you new, a high fidelity product. It's very well designed. It's beautiful to hold. It's very carefully laid out. And of course, the content within it is curated with a lot of care and attention. And I think part of the authority that the, mag the journal holds is due to the fact that it is a physical object. Um, so what I wanted to ask along this line is that you know, web-based media has of course eroded our attention spans and our ability to sustain the delayed gratification of long-form writing and to a certain extent, our interest in printed matter and physical printed matter. Um, so I've kind of answered <laughs> the question for myself here, but I wanted to put it to you um, to see what your thoughts were. Why was it important for you, for Dean, to be a long-form print-based journal? And are there ways the journal plans to capitalize more on new media as well? For example, would Dean ever start a TikTok account I suspect the answer is no, but... Alice, do you want to answer the first half and I'll answer the second uh, Yeah, I won't, I won't answer the <laughs> second part, but I will happily take on the first part. Um, I've been thinking a lot about 
and I guess maybe reflecting a lot about publications as what Jenny O'Dell coins an attention holding architecture. Hmm. And I think that that framework resonates a lot because the time, you know, this publishing is like a, a ritual act of listening. And for us, we're really trying to one, orient ourselves to how we become better listeners and two, thus orient an audience to how we become better listeners with the hope that through this listening, we can arrive at building better ethics around how we are in relationship with each other and the planet. And so I think that print really helps us sustain that attention. But not only does it help us sustain that attention, it also becomes like a physical point of reference. So, you know, again, with Deem, when we publish Deem, it is not only, it's not the end, but it's the beginning. And then we actually go back and reread Deem and it becomes also a part of how we try to apply the things that we learn through our research practice into our studio practice. And I think that it can only really become a point of reference if it's something tangible that you can go back to physically. Otherwise, I mean, I know for myself, I have thousands of tabs open all of the time until that one moment when the computer dies or something restarts suddenly and then I might lose all my tabs. Sometimes when I lose all the tabs and it asks me if I wanna reopen them, I sometimes just have to say no and, move, and start with a clean slate. Otherwise I will never let them go. But the way in which you can kind of pull something off of your shelf and reference just has a different type of um, resonance. Yeah, and in terms of the future and what the future holds for Dean, one of the things that we have been thinking about is like, especially, deem as a platform right so the journal falls underneath deem as a brand and as a platform and and we've always been excited about trying to find ways that design can insert itself in more everyday life and so being able to find platforms that allow for us to create these experiential moments that people can experience design in more nuanced ways is something that we are excited about. So for an example, uh, I think both Alison and Marquise have mentioned the reference room. So the reference room was a pop-up that we did last December, and it was around this idea of what would happen if we created an experience that was purely about engaging with the references that are foundational to this issue. And so reaching out to contributors and also pulling from our archive of reference materials that we use in order to inform the issue and creating pretty much a gallery slash library experience that we invited readers into. Um, and so things like that are ways that we're starting to experiment, but also it makes me think about, um, I teach a class at Parsons called Design Dichotomy. And one of the things that, it, that I'm very conscious of when I'm teaching is that there's students who are new to the concepts that we're talking about. There's students who are very experienced in the concepts, but then there's also students that English isn't their first language. So I need to be able to communicate a theory in three different ways in one sentence. How, how do we do that? How might I be able to create access for, for knowledge knowing that there's different levels of experience as well as language barriers. And so because of that, I find different ways to tailor the lecture that can reach people where they are. And so that's to say, we may not go and start a TikTok account, but there are ways that we do use our social media to be able to pull from our ethos to be able to communicate still with the same value and the same rigor, but maybe in a different form. And so that's gonna to continue to expand. And especially with our goal of democratizing design and creating more inclusive design features, that isn't gonna happen just purely off of long form text. That's still our foundation, but we're excited to say, okay, well, how could we start using different platforms to still achieve this same goal and not to water down or sh shift our perspective in terms of how we produce content, but to be able to deliver content to meet people where they are. I think as a way of closing, I wanted to ask this question about the relationship between your independent practices and Deem Journal. Um, so as we mentioned before, Allison knew you're co-founders of the what you've described as a community-centric design studio called Room for Magic. Marquise is the founder of Openbox, a studio focused on human-centered approaches to designing cities. So I wanted to know, how does Deem relate to these practices and what does the journal make possible that these independent practices couldn't have achieved independently? 
you know, the reason why we um, really created Dean was because we already had these practices. And I really loved uh, Design Mind by Frog, um, the uh, design studio, and really saw the need for an extension um, and this cadence between practice and expression. And so there are places within practice that has limitations within the case study. And I always found myself going and working with clients and seeing the different stories and the different insights that were bubbling up through the work that we were doing and wanted a way to further investigate. Um, I also saw individuals within the cadence of engaging with communities and doing a lot of research where I go, oh, wow, this person is doing some amazing things. I don't want to just talk to them about how it applies to the client work. I believe that they need their own platform to also speak about the work that they're doing. And it needs to be done with a level of dignity that goes beyond extraction, right? And so there is this balance between extracting as designers who are going out and doing this work to create insights for some type of unknown outcome and showing the dignity of the individuals that we are interviewing and giving them a platform to also express the work that they're doing. And so for us, when, we, when you think about Black Lives Matter, um, I take literally the two forms of that. Like there is like Black Lives Matter have value, but then that there is materiality to it, right? And we actually, there's a physical form of our existence. And so when we walk into places as practitioners, there are times where people don't see us. And so what the journal has also done, and even winning the award and seeing New give the you know, most amazing speech at the award for AIA New York, was to actually see us up front, dressed up, walking on stage with dignity, showing that we actually have material, like we are here. There is something deeper in regards to our materiality of our existence that is so vital to the process of design. And that is when we talk about evidence. And I just wanna just emphasize that physical tactile because digital is removing that and digital is, is making us think that it's magical once you, it magically goes away when you swipe up, right? And what, what we're saying is that no, it doesn't go away. It's still here. And we must recognize that. Like Alice is saying, a lot of these things are new to us. <clears throat> And it's Alice, Alice's ability as an A&R, as somebody who can spot out emerging talent, that makes Dean great. Absolutely. It's, what it's is, what is A&R? That's right. <laughs> Alice, can you? <laughs> uh, what is an A&R? <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's, that's a great question because <laughs> that's a great question. That is actually why I chose to leave the record business because that actually used to be a quite fruitful um, department. And yeah. actually it stands for artists and repertoire. And it's actually that, um, that department used to be caretakers of artists actually. So they're responsible for sourcing talent, but also helping develop talent. So hmm. working alongside artists to figure out what they need, um, hmm. connecting them with different pillars in the network and really kind of supporting them as they blossom. And that is something that I believe was my calling when I started music and I think follows me throughout wherever else I go. Yeah. So, and, uh... <laughs> and the a &R role for like the person who's like, into music that is the coveted role because that is the person who's saying hey artist you're good but i'm going to make you great by bringing in this other musician into this space and putting you together and and your project is 80 percent there you may think is 100 percent there but let me work on it a bit let's reshape this let's reorganize this so it's like this like collaborator that really helps to bring the best out of the artist, but also discovers the artist as, as well. And so I think for, for my broader point is that we all bring our different lives to Deem, Alice from a musician standpoint, Marquis even talking about the relationship of capital and especially cities, like that is embedded in Deem. And then from my standpoint of building brands, of marketing, of being able to create enticing spaces. And so when I went to grad school for design thinking, one of the things that I realized sitting in the class was like, oh, none of this is actually new to me. None of these things are new. 
they just have names for processes of things that we do organically. And we interviewed somebody for issue four that I'm not gonna mention because Alice will kill me. And we asked them a very theoretical question about their process. And they were like, no, this isn't a theory-based thing. This is something that's innate within me and within my community and that we do organically. And we don't really sit around and theorize about it because we don't have the luxury of, of doing that. That's such a beautiful point to end on the fact that sometimes the affirmations we're in search of, they don't exist or don't need to exist within the kind of formalized concept of academic language. There can be a theory embedded in the subject matter itself. And there is, in fact, always new languages for articulating those theories. Thank you so much, Neil and Alice and Marquise, for your time. Thank you so much. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. Scaffold is a project from the Architecture Foundation. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to New, Alice, and Marquise. Thanks as always to Scandalin. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.